It's Pete Price's podcast, and I'm in a beautiful home in Liverpool. And if you hear any noise in the background, um, the lovely wife is preparing dinner for about 18 family tonight. So uh, I'm very honoured to, uh, and there's some fabulous smells. It's driving me mad already. I'm talking to Terry O'Connor. Hello, Terry. Hello, Pete. How are you? I'm very well, Dee. Thank you very much for talking to us on the podcast. You are a fascinating man, a livable lad, made good. And why I wanted to interview you was because it is so important. There is a chance out there, however bad times are, there is a chance to make a living. And you are a very good example. Who's Terry O'Connor? Terry O'Connor's a Liverpool lad, as you say. I, I, was, I was actually born in Birkenhead. Uh, but moved over to Anfield when I was three years old uh, with my parents, obviously, and um, brought up in uh, just off Lower Breck Road. Uh, then in Croxteth, my, my father was Irish, my mother was uh, English, uh, Liverpool lad, but, but always, I guess, um, from a family of um, uncles and aunties that were in the, the, the teaching world. So I had a lot of sort of um, external influences from grandparents and uh, uh, extended family who were teachers. Maybe that rubbed off. I, I used to love to read. Um, even from four years old, I was an avid Marvel Comics buff, you know, sort of 1972 editions onwards of Spider-Man and the like. That, that maybe created some fascination with America and the world in, 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 in general. Let me stop you there. If you were a fan of the Marvel comics and the books... Have you seen the movies? Yeah, yeah, I've seen. Uh, I've seen. Most, so you're still a fan. I've seen most of the movies, and that you know now, as you know, I'm in the uh, in the retail business for clothing. So actually, we're Indonesia's biggest Disney customer, uh, which you know they they own the Marvel franchise, so it kind of comes full circle. So my my team can't get enough of me talking about uh, Marvel and Spider Man, and that's not technically correct, and and, and so on. <laughs> So, let's go back to it. So, you're growing up, you're interested in this, came from Birkenhead, over to Liverpool. When did it start? What was the first job? Because you had a few jobs while you were at school, and were you one that were, was entrepreneurial young? Yeah, quite, quite. I mean, I, from the age of... I mean, I had the usual stuff, like, you know, milk rounds and paper rounds and that sort of thing. Uh, I used to do a lot of odd jobs for people in the, in the neighbourhood. Um, but then, you know, my parents divorced when I was 11 and my father worked over at uh, Wilkie's Indoor Fair in New Brighton. And I, Which is still there? Yeah, yeah. So I used to go over there and work Saturday and Sunday on the rides, taking ticket money. Um, you know, I, I did that from 13 to 15. Um, and then, you know, even in the summer holidays uh, after O-levels, I was selling stone cladding, textured rendering for, I don't know if you remember, a Liverpool firm called Tudor Stone. I do. Yes, yeah, so I, I, I used to canvas for them. I used to do um, telesales calls um, and, you know, just set up interviews for the, uh, for the key salespeople and, and actually make, make good money from it. Now, the television business, that was interesting, wasn't it? Because it was a way of life and it was rental tellies. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I did a year at um, Ocean Transport and Trading first, and, uh, but the shipping, shipping company was a bit boring for me. It was a lot of repetitive work for customers. Decided I needed something that was a bit more exciting and uh, went to work for Colourvision in, uh, in Smithdown Road. And um, yeah, the, we, at the time we had Colourvision, which was sort of television and video sales on credit. And we had Colortron, 
which is a separate brand, which was which was rental. Uh, my first job was basically posting the rental payments and chasing the rental arrears and, and and that sort of thing. And then then effectively they got me involved in the uh, in the buying. So that company or that style burnt out because you can buy tallies these days. Um, I mean, I think credit still exists, but obviously, uh, you know, credit tends to be interest-free. You know, you, you know, there's a lot more credit card ownership now. Um, there's a lot more interest-free schemes. Uh, I mean, they might lead to some form of rollover credit if you don't keep up the payments, right? But, uh, but there's a lot more payment options, digital wallets, um, you know, points redemption, etc. So you don't see so much of that. And the rental companies were always exposed because they had... Um, you know, they had sort of installed packages of £19.99 a month, whereas you could buy it and finance it for, say, £12.99 a month. So, uh, and, and they couldn't afford to drop the prices for the installed base without effectively creating a, a crisis for their business. If you had problems with people not paying, was it easy to get the tellies back? Generally speaking, yeah. I mean, you, you know, I, th- I think ultimately... Um, I mean, in, in Liverpool, we worked through third-party finance companies. So my, my, my boss was very smart. He, he, he offered credit, which was no recourse to the company. So it would have been with Hitachi Credit or it would have been with, uh, I can't remember the names of the company, Lombardtricity, Club 24. I think they were the names around in the, in the 80s. So they were taking the risk. We were just receiving essentially a commission. So that was clever. When you were doing this, had you any idea how successful you were going to be in the world? I, I was always ambitious. I, you know, I don't know why I was always ambitious. Maybe I didn't really have any reason to be ambitious in, in, in that sense, but maybe because, you know, we lived in, uh, we lived in rented accommodation. We lived in council houses. My, you know, my dad sometimes had work, sometimes didn't have work. Uh, my mum didn't have work from, from pretty young age. So maybe there's that element of, you know, you being forged in hardship and you wanting to create a difference for, for your own family and for your own kids and, you know, and all of that. So I was definitely very, very driven, um, very hardworking. Um, you know, when I met Janice, I was doing retail by day at Smithdown Road, and then I was going over to the Mons in Bootle to do the bar work, and that's how we met. I walked into her mum's chippy. You know, so uh, so the, you know, so the, the the work ethic and the ambition were there, but of course, you know, you've you, you've got to you've got to develop skills. You've got to you know have a curiosity about you and. Um, commit to lifelong learning. You've got an incredibly strong marriage. Do you think that's been important in your life through your career? Oh, definitely. I mean, no, no question. I mean, if I think about when we first met, um, I was working, you know, evenings most of the time. Um, Janice was, was working in a restaurant um, most of the time. Um, when our kid was born, um, I, my career was starting to do well, but that was then involved travel around the UK and then eventually travel outside of the UK. Um, you know, you've got to have a supportive partner. You've got to have somebody that um, is on a shared mission, shared journey. Um, and in the early days, accept the sacrifices. I mean, of course, work-life balance is important at some point, um, but not when you're 22. I mean, when you're 22, you just need to build your career. I'm talking to Terry O'Connor. Uh, it's Pete Price. It is our podcast. I'm going to hold it there for a second and ask Terry because he is incredibly successful in business, which you'll talk about more. Do you get frustrated now at youngsters of today? Do you think they've got it easy, hard, because everything has changed so much? Because in your day, there wasn't social media. 
Is it more difficult or is it easier to get jobs or are people lazy? That's a big question. <laughs> I don't, well, of course, some people are lazy. Some people have always been lazy. Uh, and, and that's not, you know, a lack of a work ethic is something that um, I, I, I don't understand, right? Because, I mean, ultimately, um, nobody's going to look out for you but, but yourself. I mean, I can certainly understand if youngsters are very confident about their skills and they're very confident about learning something new every four to five years then wanting to travel around the world or experience different cultures, um, etc. And as long as you're, you're doing that on a repeat learning cycle, there's nothing wrong with it. But ultimately, um, checking out and not putting in the, 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 the hard yards um, to be successful um, is not going to be a recipe for you being um, independent, for you being able to you know, uh, give your partner or your kids a good life. Um, you know, so so it's it's a personal choice. I mean, if it, if it's about you, then you only need what you need to um, have the kind of life that you want, and that might be very simple. Um, but when it becomes about other people, when it becomes about creating um, a good life for your partner, um, the right kind of opportunities for your kids, well, you know, you only get one shot at this, right? You, 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 you to me, there are three elements um, of success early on. Um, you know, one is commitment, be prepared to commit to hard work. Um, the second is ability. You've got to work whatever natural talent you've got. And, and you know, I was listening to your podcast with um, with Paul Askew and him talking about, you know, sort of the the nobility of being in the sort of service industry. And, and I absolutely agree with him, uh, you know, that, that, you know, it's a profession, it's a skill. Um, and the third, you know, is, is knowledge. Right? You've got to read, you've got to hang out with the right people. You've got to get the right influences. I mean, if you sit, if you sit next to a high performer, you're going to perform 15 to 20% better yourself at whatever you choose to do. So you meet Janice, you get married. It's a great relationship. You courted her in a chippy, which was fabulous. You were working at the Mons. Everything was going well. What made you make the decision to go to Singapore and why Singapore? I worked for Colorvision for seven years and I went from trainee buyer to buying director. I mean, imagine that. I mean, imagine my, my first boss, a chairman, gave me the, the full buying portfolio when I was 23 years old. I mean, I, 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 I kind of shudder when I think about whether I'd be brave enough to give young people that kind of opportunity. Now, I, I hope that I would if they were good enough. Um, but you, you, when you're a Liverpool lad working for a Liverpool company that's expanding nationally, um, you haven't come from Dixon's, you haven't come from Comet, you haven't come from Rumbelow's, you know, you remember, remember all of those names. Um, you're, you're, you're not imported talent, you're not somebody, so you haven't been trained somewhere else, and that's where value gets prescribed. So I realized I needed to be somebody else's talent um, at some point. That was an emotional break because I had a fantastic relationship with my chairman and, and, and my colleagues. Um, I was buying electronics from Asia at that time. I was, I was importing from Asian suppliers. Um, I had a wife from Hong Kong. Um, so it was a natural curiosity, but it wasn't long term. It was really the, the thinking at the time was go out for three, three years, get it on your CV, get the international experience and then come back to Liverpool. I'm still there. Why Singapore? It wasn't meant to be Singapore. It was meant to be Hong Kong. Oh. Yeah, it was because she's from Hong Kong and, and uh, Hong Kong... Uh, had a lot of um, uh, buying agencies for Chinese goods. Um, I had a lot more business connections in, in Hong Kong. So I reached out to some of my 
friends in the industry and said I was looking for an opportunity. They said they'd look around Hong Kong. Uh, and then they came back and said, um, Quartz, if you remember Quartz, the furniture retail company here, had you know, all of these stores in fancy places, but they were looking overseas to be more of a, an electrical retailer. Um, and they were looking for six bright young talents from the UK to go out and help push them into uh, the business. And, um, you know, so Singapore came up in my context. Another guy went to Malaysia, another guy went to Mauritius, one went to Barbados, one went to Jamaica, uh, one went to Trinidad. Um, you know, I think I got the, the you know, the, uh, the best uh, assignment by, by far, because Singapore was really sort of taking off at that time. Singapore, and I'm very privileged to have been there quite a lot now, uh, and I met you because of Singapore, um, which is another story. Tell us about life in Singapore as it was and why you like it so much and how it's changed, if it has changed. It's definitely changed. I mean, look, Singapore is, is a fantastic place. If you're um, a young person wanting to build a career, um, you know, Singapore's got loads of opportunities because it is a regional hub. You know, companies wanting to get into Asia tend to either set up uh, office first in Singapore or Hong Kong and then sort of work, work it out from there in terms of the expansion. So there's lots of international companies. I had a lot of Liverpool uh, talent in, in Singapore. Um, you know, I, I, a lot of my friends are, are scousers around the region. Um, Singapore at the time was, you know, really building out its uh, public transport network. It was really building out its, um, its concept of regional centres. Uh, the airport was adding Terminal 3, there are now five terminals at the airport. It was really creating itself as a regional connected uh, hub. Um, you had uh, wage, you know, good wage growth uh, and good income growth, good career growth. Um, so retail opportunities were expanding. Um, so I landed in a business that was already successful. Um, I think the turnover was $72 million at the time. But, you know, and um, you know, we built that over 25 years to be 10 times the size um, because you, know, you had an emerging um, middle class to sell into. Um, people were um, going from small TVs to medium-sized TVs to bigger TVs. They were buying, uh, you know, better hi-fi systems. Um, and so as, as the, the, the nation got more prosperous, we were able to build our business, uh, add category, add new categories, you know, whether that be white goods, whether that be cameras, whether that be digital products, um, you know, so in, uh, my job in 1993 was to get courts properly into the electrical business. But by 1997, I was pushing into the IT business. By 1999, I was pushing into the digital camera business. Um, by, the two, by the year 2000, I was pushing into the electronic services business. You know, so everything that was already mature in the UK and all the learnings you had, a lot of the first, you know, 10 years was just, okay, we're going to roll out everything that I know that works um, back home. One thing I love about you too, because then we'll talk about the business being sold, but your feet have always firmly been on the ground and your roots are here. And what I love is that you have kept in touch with your real friends I mean, you've got lots of friends around the world, but here are the people you grew up. You've never forgotten them, have you? No, I mean, I mean, basically, you know, what's what's life about? Is it, if it isn't for family, friends, and, and and mates, you know? So they they've been out to Singapore a couple of times. My my Singapore mates love my Liverpool mates. Um, you know, they've stayed with us. Um, I've I've come back for 
all of their weddings because I was the first to get married but then I've flown back when, when they've got married uh, you know flown back for special occasions they've flown over for special occasions um, we still go to the match together um, you know I, I, I think the worst thing about uh, success would be if it changed you I mean the idea of being successful is you know to be able to see the people who matter more often Simple as that, mm. simple as that. Let's go back to Courts. Courts was sold? Yeah, um, so I, 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 when I first went out, I was um, buying director, um, and I, I'll, I'll cut the story short. I, you, seven years later, I became managing director of, of um, Courts um, in Singapore. Um, then the, the worst thing that could possibly happen happened in 2004. Courts UK went bust, so our parent company went bust overnight. It overexpended here in England. Um, the banks pulled the plug and I had to go to work um, to face my team um, with our parent company um, in administration. And I just decided at the time, you know, this can be a, a crisis or it can be an opportunity. And so I just said to the team, I'm staying. I'll, I'll work with the administra administrator KPMG. We'll find a new buyer. Um, we'll invest in the company ourselves. And um, it took two and a half years, but two and a half years later, we did a management buyout with the aid of Bearings, um, Private Equity Asia. Um, we bought the company in Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand. We worked on improving the Malaysia stores, uh, improving the business across Asia. Um, we listed it in 2012. Um, so a lot of my team, from also from humble backgrounds, made, made good for their own families yeah. as well. And... Um, and then we sold the rest of it in uh, 20, early 2019 to a Japanese retailer called uh, Najima Corp. So after that was a 26-year journey. Um, so that was quite an emotional moment. But, you know, every single person that, that I work with, that I groomed, that I trained, uh, that I developed, you know, they've all got jobs now. They're all doing well, um, which is a delight to see. The buyout, was that very complicated? Was it sleepless nights? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very difficult, you know, if you, you have no um, parent company. I mean, I was dealing with KPMG. We were literally courts PLC in administration. And uh, we had one buyer that sort of went all the way to the finish line. And then it, that fell through. And, of course, people can get disheartened or disillusioned. Uh, but then I met a guy um, uh, called Jack Hennessy uh, in May 2006. And he liked the story. He felt that we could really sort of, you know, improve the business uh, in Southeast Asia, and um, he and Bering's backed us, and um, we did. We followed through on our commitments, and we made them good money. So, looking back, you started off over here, you got to this stage. Was there any time you thought, I'm going to retire now? Um, no, I don't, I don't like the concept of retirement, to be honest. I mean, I, I think you, you, you choose how many hours you want to work. You choose whether it's paid work or charity work. You choose... Um, whether you're running the residence committee, you choose whether you're, you know, taking dogs for a walk or helping, uh, you know, helping the elderly. I mean, you know, I think it's important to have a routine and people who have a routine live longer. You know, I mean, there's a Japanese concept called Ikigai and it just simply means purpose. And it means it and there's no Japanese word for retirement. Right? Really? Yeah, there's either, you know, working for a living or some other form of routine. And they reckon that's what keeps you alive, routine. I'll agree with that. I'll agree with that completely. So, you weren't retiring. An unbelievable job came up. 
which once again proves how strong your marriage is because you had all the distance. Tell us about that. Um, so when I, when I parted company with Japanese uh, oat buyers, because uh, I stayed on for six months and helped them out in the first part of 2019, um, so we, we agreed a nice amicable parting of the ways, but that, that part of that was involved me not working for anybody for six months. So from July 2019 to the end of the, end of the year, I was on a, effectively an enforced career break, which was lovely. We, we came back here more often. Um, we, 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 went, we had more holidays. We went to Japan for the Rugby World Cup. That was, that was good fun for the whole month. And, the, and uh, our kids and friends sort of came through for that. Um, but while I was on that career break, uh, one of um, the wealthiest families in Indonesia reached out and sort of, uh, you know, uh, through friends and we connected and, and uh, I was just asked whether I would be interested in running Matahari Department Store, which is a huge business. It's, you know, a billion, a billion dollar plus uh, enterprise, um, you know, 169 stores at the time um, and, uh, you know, fashion, footwear. Uh, and beauty, not so nothing to do with electronics or, or furniture, not nothing to do with my background, but of course retail's in my blood. Uh, and after half a dozen conversations or so, I decided that I would. I couldn't contractually until the first of January 2020, but on New Year's Eve, January 31st, uh, December 31st, 2019, I got on a plane and I landed as I promised I would and started a new journey as the CEO of Matahari Department Store. Was that a shock? I mean, are all the countries similar, like Singapore and that whole area, or was this a cultural shock to you? Uh, well, I'd, I'd, we'd had a small subsidiary in Indonesia before, so I was used to travelling to Jakarta. I knew Bali very well because we've had a you know a holiday place there before, um, and so I knew, no, I knew what to expect in terms of the the country. It's an emerging economy. It's obviously not as built up as sophisticated uh it doesn't have the kind of infrastructure that singapore has but that's what makes it exciting right it's it's you know it's a young country on the march adding infrastructure um you know with a with a willing passionate young workforce uh and so i didn't really do it from the point of view of um ambition anymore you know i mean of course i've got ambition for the company but i I, it's more so it's more of a passion project i mean it's more like this is a great brand it's well loved by indonesian people um the 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 people that we have are fantastic there's so much energy around um and i I felt it's a good opportunity for me to impart my knowledge impart my skills and, and and really sort of um put um some energy and excitement and joy uh into the company what's the country like it's huge. It's 17,000 islands. It takes five and a half hours to fly across it. It's 287 million people. It's the um, uh, biggest Muslim population in one country in the world. Um, but you've got all cultures and all creeds uh, across the country. I mean, you know, you've got liberal places like Bali and Manado. Uh, you've got um, very traditional places, uh, you know, as well, like Aceh. Um, and, you know, the, the, the big tier one cities like Jakarta, Surabaya, Medan there, um, you know, really sort of uh, booming mega cities. Um, you know, so it, the, the scale of Indonesia is, is massive. I mean, it's on by 2050, it'll be the fourth highest GDP in the world. It'll be eighth by 2030. Um, you know, it's, it's got a massive demographic dividend. Um, you know, I guess it 
it probably feels like the UK was in, you know, in, in the late 80s. It's on the march, you know? I remember you telling me that you could make more money in one, I think it was a religious weekend in all the stores than in a year. Yeah, so it's it's very seasonal. I mean, it's a bit like the retail industry here at Christmas, but maybe sort of three three times, you know, the scale. Um, so you have a situation where um, four weeks before uh, Le Baron uh, or, or Eid, as it might be known here, um, you know, Ramadan starts, the holy month. Um, so for the first week, it's a little bit quieter, you know, when people are getting into their routine of fasting and breaking fast and and that sort of thing but then from from there on they really come out to buy clothes um and other items for visiting and um, for family reunions um and new clothes are essential um you know you get that we and you get that in in hong kong and china for chinese year as well right so um but it's very very polarized so it will be a situation where in the last week before eid we'll do nine ten percent of annual turnover in the in those few weeks we'll do a third of annual turnover so it means you know it's not really just about core retailing it's about capacity management it's about we've got to triple the number of cashiers we've got to make it a better customer experience for people to get in and out uh quickly we've got to make sure you know we're, we're essentially you know the the mothership of the of the indonesian textile industry right so we've got to make sure the suppliers are well looked after and the stores are you know uh rammed with stock but we have to do that in a very organized way i mean imagine if imagine if you were running Marks and spencers in the uk and christmas week was three times as important as it is now and what that would mean for how you had to set up the store uh, it's it's like that i'm talking to terry o'connor i've got to ask how many years you've been away uh 30 years this year so 30 years you come back to liverpool regularly um have you seen huge changes yeah, I mean, I, I obviously, you know, I'm a child of the '80s and uh, and all of the difficulties that we that we had here in terms of, um, you know, the riots and uh, and uh, uh, employment and you know um, the the politics. Um, I was away, you know, uh, um, for for much of the '90s um, and and 2000s. But you know, I was I, I remember when we were building our megastore. Uh, in Singapore in 2005. We were planning it in 2004 and I, 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 I employed a designer called Sir Rodney Fitch. Uh, Fitch was one of the, uh, the designers that was on this Liverpool One project. And so he showed me what was going to happen with Liverpool One before... Anyone else? Be, yeah, before, before it was seen generally. So, and I was so excited. I was so I was like this is the catalyst that this city needs right it needs injection and then it was quickly followed by the the capital of culture um and and, and investment related uh to 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 culture and the arts and we heard Paul talking about the culinary and the restaurant scene uh, that's emerged and of course you know recently the Eurovision which I know you were you know sort of um, very effusive about as well so it's just been you know when I left um I, you know, it was it was a an amazing city. I mean, I still felt it was the best city in the world with the best the best humor in the world, with the best football in the world, with the best heritage. Um, but it just didn't have the investment and the self belief. And when I, you start to sort of see the investment flow, then the self belief kick in, 
and then a certain amount of momentum that's kicked in and it's a real joy to see you know what's happened over the past 20 years tell us a couple of things about singapore for instance to run a car there costs a great deal of money to live in a home i think it gets pulled down every so often i mean there's some strange ideas aren't there but they seem to work yeah well the, the idea about cars being so expensive of course it's low income tax right so so because it's low income tax you know they 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 get the money in in other ways right i mean based on consumption uh based on car usage um so they control the car population so it's something it's like it's a certificate of entitlement and there's only so many per month and you bid for them and the idea is that the number of certificates that are being retired equals the number that are being added so the car population on the road doesn't change what changes is just supply and demand so the car prices can go sky high um because it's just based on whatever people's bidding capacity is, right? So you've had, just the, I'm talk, not talking about the price of the car, I'm just talking about the piece of paper. The piece of paper in my time in Singapore has been to a high of $150,000 to a low of $50. Not 50,000, 50 bucks. And this is to own a car? To own a car, yeah. So, I mean, lease is different. Leasing is a bit more stable, right? But, but effectively, it's just... So the car, because you have to retire the certificate after 10 years. So you don't get exhaust fumes. You don't get the pollution. You don't, you, the car population is, is, is quite young. Um, but, and of course, that does exclude some people from the market, right? So that's why they have to have a world-class public transport system, the MRT, the buses. I mean, and they're predictable and on time and well-serviced and clean. Clean. Yeah. You know, so you, if you're going to manage... Um, a fixed car population and charge for that and so that okay people can bid you then you've got to go hand in hand with a world-class um uh, uh world-class situation for for transport and then similarly with housing you know they want everybody to own their own home so you get subsidized housing but just that you you get housing that's subsidized by the government but you're not allowed to sell it for five years right so you can't and you and you can't have two I mean, you, I, I think you can have two and pay a premium now, but, but you know, you, so you don't, there's no flipping, right? The government is saying, we're going to give you the opportunity to own your own home affordably, but this is not for you to treat as a debenture or, or, or flip or make money. This is for you to, you know, establish your family. And it's strict, isn't it? It's a strict country. It is strict, and maybe some of the things that Singapore does you, you, you couldn't do in Europe or you couldn't do in England. There'd be too many people to corral and but too it many. Works. But it But it, it, for, for a city state, um, it works. You know, it's benevolent, um, it's forward looking. They plan forward 30, 50 years. Um, they, they've got a, you know, the, I mean, I, I went to INSEAD, the, you know, the French um, uh, business school, uh, an event there, and they kind of, the, one of the professors there, broken down what makes a country successful and they'd taken a bunch of countries in the 1950s and tracked them to today yeah lots of things that everybody had everybody had the same opportunities same starting point and what they reckoned is what separated the winners from um the rest is the quality of institutions quality of institutions right so and not that's not politicians that's the civil service yeah Interesting. I'm not going to take much longer of your time, but I've got to ask about Harvard. What's that all about? Um, look, I mean, I, I, I left school when I was um, 17. I walked out of St. Edward's College here in Liverpool, which is 
deemed, I guess, one of the best schools in Liverpool. But I didn't walk out on education. I just had to earn money at that time for my mom and for the family and for myself, etc. Um, I thought I had a skill in terms of being able to talk to people, being able to negotiate, be, uh, you know, and so on. So I just thought, you know, I'll come back to education later. So I did. I, um, I didn't get a degree, um, but I did a, an MBA when I was 27 um, with, with Sterling. And then I've had lots of learning opportunities. I've, I've grabbed every one of them over the years. Um, and then through my membership of YPO, which is Young, Young Presidents Organization, there's a YPO arrangement with Harvard Business School where there's a you know, dedicated uh, week every January. Um, so I signed up for that in 2015 and um, I'll graduate in January. So you've got you to go for nine years and of course we missed one year because of COVID. So, um, you know, so that's, that's me round, trying to round out the education and, uh, and make up for the missed opportunity when I was 17. Have you still got your folks? No, uh, no. My my dad passed away quite young. He was sixty one. He passed away in two thousand and one. Uh, my mum sadly passed away during COVID in March twenty twenty one. That's right. You struggled to get back, didn't you? Yeah. Well, I came back and then I had to do the ten days quarantine here in the flat, right? Uh, and uh, we had the funeral three days later. And then there was no point in sticking around because everything was locked down. What did your mum think of your success? I don't think she fully. Uh, understood, or you know, she was she wasn't a businesswoman, but uh, obviously she knew that um, that we'd done well, and we knew that you know we had the opportunity to bring her out to Singapore. I think about five times. Um, she, we, she knew that we came back here very often. Uh, I've got a very supportive family here, uh, cousins who helped me uh, look after her when I, you know when I was overseas as well. Um, so. Yeah, I think she was proud because she didn't probably know the full extent of why she was proud. To finish off, advice for somebody out there who's got ambition, doesn't know which direction to go in, wonders what they're going to do with it because it is a different world we're living in. What would you say? I'd just say, you know, take as much opportunity to learn as possible. You know, whatever your, whatever your passion is, whatever your passion is. I mean, you know, um, parents have got a view, relatives have got a view... Um, but only you know, you know, what you're really passionate about. And it's so much easier if you follow something that you're genuinely interested in. And it's so much easier to take in learning and knowledge and, 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 and information about that as well. Um, but you've got to marry that knowledge with work ethic. I mean, it's just you, you, whether you're looking at sports people, whether you're looking at journalists, whether you're looking at uh, radio hosts, you know, it's just about learning your craft and there's just no easy way to do it. You've got to put in the hours um, and be committed. Uh, so it's, it's, it's knowledge, ability and commitment to something that you're genuinely interested in. And of course, now it's a modern world. Everything changes every five years. And so you, you can't rely on something you learn five or ten years ago. You You've got to be in that sort of perpetual learning mode all the time. You know, if you're a, if you're a university student today, well, what you're learning is not going to be relevant in ten years' time. It's just a moment in time. It's just a way to get you on the right track. But then you've got to keep topping up the knowledge bank. To finish off, will you finish your last days in Liverpool? <laughs> uh, I'll definitely spend more time in Liverpool. That's for sure. Um, I think the right balance for us is um, time between Singapore and Liverpool. I mean, after 30 years, you know, we've got lifelong friendships and 
routines. Uh, but every single year of those 30 years, we've been back here once, twice, maybe three times. Um, and so um, you can't be, you can't live a mobile life and then suddenly be stationary. Thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. Why not subscribe? You know it's free. So join us and tell your friends. It's great going on walks and doing whatever you want to do and then putting P-Price on. We've got a back catalogue of over 100 interviews. Join us. Subscribe. It's free.